Hello and welcome back to Biz News Radio. I am Felicity Duncan and with me, Alec Hug, here to discuss the news of the new year so far. Alec, the first thing we've got to talk about, of course, is the news out of Apple, which was very striking and which sent markets really reeling in the early part of the week. The news being that they are going to miss their previously announced sales target by several billion dollars, um, in large part uh, because of the plunging sales that they've been experiencing in China. But of course, there's also more to it than that. What was your reading of that announcement? Well, Apple's in our business uh, global portfolio, so clearly we've been watching it closely. And of course, my hero, Warren Buffett, my inspiration, don't forget about that. We want people to give us their inspirations. Um, but the, the man who's, uh, whose investment ideas must be taken very seriously is a big investor now. In fact, it's the biggest share he owns in his portfolio. So I watch Apple closely. And it might seem like little if you forecast your sales are going to be 84 billion and uh, sorry, 89 billion, and they're coming in now at 84. Uh, but in fact, it's it's been seismic, and the reason for that is it's uh, more than a decade and a half since Apple missed its forecast at the end of every quarter, and uh, in, in their quarterly uh, engagement with analysts, Apple gives a, a very a clear forecast of what's happening in the quarter that follows. In other words, they will talk usually about three to four weeks into the new quarter. So they've only really got two more months of the quarter left. And at that point in time, they give you a forecast. That makes the analysts very happy. It's transparent. And in this case, the forecast was a minimum of $89 billion and going up to about $94 billion, uh, potentially sales in the uh, last three months of 2018. Now, this week, they came out to say, no, well, you know, they'll get to about $84 billion. And the reason, as you've articulated, is to do with China and uh, upgrading of phones um, not going as strongly as they anticipated in the West. It is a a warning flag, and and you've been you've been waving this one. I remember when the iPhone X came out, you were talking about a thousand dollars for a phone being pretty excessive, and Apple has continued to push the envelope. Uh, it did well in the third quarter of last year. Uh, because the revenues were a lot higher, even though the unit sales of iPhones were falling. And remember, the market looks at Apple be- as an iPhone company now because about two-thirds of its sales come from iPhones. So it looks like that classic example of just pushing a little bit too hard. Uh, the price increases last year were over 20% on their products. That has now – the market is now saying, hmm, we love you, Apple but maybe we don't love you twice as much as we love the alternatives. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think that the smartphone market is mature now. It's changed. It's evolved. And like any other technology, as that happens, you start to see consumers get more interested in generics, right? So, you know, if you think about something like like a common appliance, like a a TV or a microwave or something like that, very few companies or a refrigerator actually is a good one. When those first came out, you could charge really premium prices and people had very strong brand preferences. But then as time goes by and the technology spreads and matures, suddenly, you know, the third best refrigerator is just as good as the best fridge. 
right? And so people then start to say, well, why should I be spending more? So there's a bit of that happening. There's also, of course, the fact that the big markets for smartphones now are in emerging markets. And Apple, for example, has a very, very low share in uh, a market like India, which is so important for smartphone growth because people are just opting for the, the far cheaper alternatives. Um, and again, then, of course, with the slowdown in, in consumer spending in China really dinging it. And then one more thing that I read, there was a good piece in our partner, the Wall Street Journal, talking about worries that Apple's uh, falling and sort of slumping uh, unit sales really points to a slowdown in what has been the big innovative space, right? Smartphones, you know, when Apple introduced the iPhone, that created just a whole new economic world, right? We wouldn't have Uber. We wouldn't have so many of the, the companies that are big and popular and sexy right now wouldn't exist without what Apple did with the app, app economy and all the rest of it. Uh, but that's also maturing. And so a bit of this is also people saying, well, if Apple's maturing, if smartphone technology is maturing, where is the next boost of growth going to come from? Where do we look for innovation? So I think that people are reading this as a canary in a coal mine on a lot of different fronts. Mm, yeah, and the the popular uh, perception or the popular punditry is that it tells us what's happening in global markets. But I'm with you. I think it's more a question of what's happening at Apple. Now, again, another guy whose life I've followed uh, very closely was Steve Jobs. And when Steve Jobs died, uh, having read the biographies, understanding the way that he was trying to do things with the new Apple after he'd been kicked out and then came back later – it, uh, th there were many who felt that this was going to have a significant impact on the company. It's to his credit that the legacy has continued, that Apple has continued to expand, even though Jobs has now been gone for what's it, six years. However, there are some big issues that we're now starting to see. That innovation is a big, is a is a key one. Uh, Jobs was the prime innovator. He loved design and he was unbelievable at, at, at innovating. And there's only one Steve Jobs. Clearly, uh, the, Tim Cook's a good guy, his uh, former chief operating officer, but it's like putting an accountant as the chief executive of a, uh, of a company that's a challenger in a particular area. You're not really, unless it's an unusual accountant, you're not really likely to be able to find the innovations and creativity which is going to give you the growth in the market share. That's the first thing. And the second thing was price. And this is a key thing for us. We've learned at BizNews, Felicity, that price must be kept low. Jobs said that online his, his number was $5. So there's no, there's, there's no accident that our premium subscriptions are pitched at £4.99. So in other words, the £5 level. It comes straight from Steve Jobs' playbook because he said when you go above $5 with a monthly subscription, it starts becoming something that people have to reassess and look at in a different way. If it's up to five, if it's $5, it's such a small number that you can get them signed up and then you keep adding value into the long term and they stay with you forever. But what's happened at Apple is since Jobs' departure, 
the escalation in the sh- in the pricing of the products, the growth in the profit margins has been far above where it would have been, I believe, anyway, had Steve Jobs still been around. So if, if Jobs was still running the company, you'd probably find that the prices of the iPhones and the other products would not have been escalated to the degree that they have. And there's maybe the accountants are, are getting more involved now rather than the creative people. And there comes a tipping point at some point in time where this works against the business. Now, I don't think Apple's Apple's run its race, not by a long, long shot. The ecosystem is still there. Uh, it, that hasn't really been impacted much. They haven't been able to uh, yet to to yield the benefits from it. But the problem is the the services side of Apple is only fifteen percent of the total turnover, and that is a that is an issue. What this price increase has done, though, it's got people who would have been bes- well, people like me, besotted with Apple, would not have perhaps misguided loyalty would not have even looked at an alternative. Suddenly, I am looking at alternatives, and uh, as we were talking off air on my iMac, I'm now using Windows. I've now switched across to Windows because we need it for our internet radio station. And what I found is that the old clunky Windows that I remember from 10 years ago is a very different proposition today. And Windows 10 is as good as the OS that uh, I've been used to now on Apple. So hang on a minute. Maybe next time when I go and get an iPhone, I might go for a a, a different phone, which costs half as much as uh, what the iPhone costs. And so on and so forth. So it's, it's this, this very, very dangerous area that Apple's playing in at the moment where it does have a, a closed ecosystem and you will pay a premium for it. But how big is the premium? Jobs knew this and he, he was very sensitive to this. His successes, it appear, have actually let the ball, have dropped the ball on that. Yeah, you can only milk a cash cow for so long, right? And, and they, Apple doesn't seem to have anything lined up to replace it as it's milking this particular cash cow ever harder. There's a, there's not a new one being born. So it is definitely an interesting time for the company. Now this, this had a big impact on global markets, right? Or let's talk specifically US markets, right? So the Dow, the S&P, everything sort of slumped a lot in the wake of this news. And then, um, on Friday rebound after the Fed said some um, comforting things to investors and after an extremely strong jobs report out of the US. So what we're really seeing, it seems to me, in global markets is we're really seeing the return of volatility, which we hadn't seen since, I would say, uh, early early 2016. Um, and that can make people feel nervous and that can make investors uh, make the bad choice or make the wrong call, right? Because nobody likes to see their investments rise and fall very sharply in a, in a short amount of time. And sometimes when that happens, people panic and maybe sell at the wrong moment or, you know, dive into the market at the wrong moment. So really a return to volatility and that poses risks for investors. It does indeed. And it also puts more responsibility on basic investing and and what i mean by basic investing is what warren buffett says if you buy a farm you don't look at the price of the farm every day so one day you have rain so things are growing so the farm is worth more money and then uh, a few days later you you don't have rain so should you be dropping the, share, the the price of that farm so you should be looking in the same way at 
your other investments, your equity investments. If you buy a share, you should not be following the share price on a day-to-day basis, but you buy it on the understanding that if the markets were closed for five years, at the end of that period, you'd be satisfied still owning that share in the same way as if you were to buy a farm or a house or any other long-term asset. And unfortunately, this whole psychology, this whole pop kind of mood of trading the market, uh, I, I hear it often with people that I engage with who who want tips on shares and they want to know how they can uh, become investors in inverted commas and make more than 20% a year. Now, Buffett only makes 21% over an extended period. So, And he knows a whole lot more about investing than just about every other human being alive. So how is it possible for someone who's coming into the game uh, from scratch to, to even think that they can make that kind of money? More likely is they're going to lose 20%. If they're lucky, they could lose a lot more than that. But that's where it comes back to volatility. If the volatility is too much for your heart if you're not sleeping at night. And I say this to people who've invested in our global portfolio. If they find that uh, the way the the share prices are whipsawing, then reduce your exposure or actually teach yourself, if you can, just to switch off and wait for the – for take a five-year view. And in five years' time when you have a look back, Wow, you'll you'll uh, very likely had a good return. Now, this is quite instructive when you have a look at our global portfolio, which we started uh, only f- when was it 2013. Uh, so we started it uh, nearly. Sorry, we started 2014. We started it nearly five years ago. If you have a look at the return on that portfolio, at one point it was showing 41% annualized. Now, it doesn't matter how clever you are you're never going to be able to sustain that kind of a return. I mean, twice what Warren Buffett's generating. Now it's down into the 20s because we've had a uh, a sell-off. If you'd said five years ago you get 20% a year return on uh, long-term uh, equity investment, you'd have grabbed it with both hands. But now some people are saying, oh, goodness, in September it was showing 40% a year. Um, I I should have sold then. The trouble is – the most instructive uh, example I have of this was was Amazon. When Amazon listed in the mid-1990s, it had a, a good start to its life and uh, right up until the peak of NASDAQ in early 2000, the share price of Amazon rose with the rest of NASDAQ. And it then, after the bubble burst, because it had risen too far, it dropped 97%. Now think about this. Amazon's share price, because of the NASDAQ crash, dropped to 3% of the level that it was at at its peak in the NASDAQ crash. And since then, of course, it's done extremely well. But if you go back to 1997 and had you, 99, sorry, the year 2000, had you bought Amazon at the peak, at the absolute peak of the NASDAQ market, you'd still have made 10 times your money today. So it kind of gives you an understanding. You've got to ride through, even if you make a real blow and, and, and are unfortunate and you buy the shares at absolutely the wrong time, as anybody uh, had did with Amazon at the peak of the market. If they understood the company and understood why they bought it and closed their eyes and put it in the bottom drawer and carried on with the rest of their life, when they look back in a few years' time, they could have a 10-bagger, as happened in that case. So it's, it's all about – 
being uh, and being absolutely confident about the the business that you're buying into and then having realistic ambitions on the return of that investment and those realistic ambitions have got to be uh, what you would gauge against anything else that you would any other return on investment that you'd be happy with and anything in double figures per annum uh, compound over a period of time you're doing pretty well that's right and people have got to uh, try and separate the emotion from the rationality and in investing which is very hard to do of course because humans are emotional creatures but if they listen to your good advice and just uh, take a step back and think with their minds and not their stomachs i think uh, people can ride out a difficult market, not necessarily a bear market, but a difficult market. Now, before we uh, wrap up for the this episode, I wanted to very quickly just touch on looking ahead, JSE 2019. There's been some uh, negativity out there, people saying, oh, you know, can you rely on the JSE if that's your primary saving place for retirement? Uh, what's your take on that for people in South Africa who have most of their savings or most of their uh, retirement savings, at least, uh, vested in the JSE and are worried about what the MA hold? Well, when we started the global portfolio, uh, the point there was that we were deeply suspicious of Zoomonomics and uh, rightly so because these were, it was just an excuse for plundering. We know where the country has come from. We know how difficult the, the, the situation has been, and we know how, how backward the, or how much uh, potential growth the economy not only gave up, but in fact contracted. But that's all done now. We've, Zoomonomics is out of the way. We're getting back to normality, to normalcy. And South Africa is an emerging market with, with, enormous potential, the most incredible people. You just have to look at what SAFAs do around the world and you know that this is a it's a font of of, of great enthusiasm, great energy and uh, and great innovation. So it is a country that is positioned in every way you want to look at it for a rebound. To to also look back over the last five years and, and to start using zoomonomics using the absolute pits of a governance as your benchmark of what's going to happen into the future, I think is, is sensationalistic to say the least. My sense on this is that if you just look at, in, at it in perspective, in 2018, the South African market was down 11%, the JSE. That's not good. But by the same token, emerging markets were down 17%. So if you were an emerging market fund manager – and you were overweight South Africa, you would in fact be drinking some Cape wine today in celebration of the fact that your South African stocks have outperformed those of other emerging markets. That's the first point. The second point is that it's a little bit like the people who sold Anglo Platinum at the beginning of last year. Anglo Platinum collapsed. Uh, the, 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 the news about platinum was awful. Uh, the, the, uh, trade unions on the mines, uh, AMCU, were looking inc increasingly militant. And as a consequence of that, all the news was bad. But if you'd gone against the trend and instead of selling when all the news was bad or perceived to be bad, you'd bought Anglo Platinum, you would have made 52% on your money last year. Why? Well, platinum is still a noble metal. But an interesting thing there as well is that the world is starting to wake up to the reality that fuel cells, which effectively take hydrogen, 
uh, use a platinum uh, catalyst and then generate uh, uh, the, the energy from that, from the, the, uh, the chemical process, fuel cells are a viable alternative to electric motors when you go into the, into the future. They might not dominate the field. Electric motors might indeed be it. But fuel cells are, are being developed in China. Toyota has backed it completely. Uh, Hyundai this year also came out with fuel cells. What does that mean? It means that there is demand for platinum again. Platinum is not going to just be thrown away. Consequence of that, the platinum shares have improved. And if uh, if you have a more optimistic projection onto platinum into the future, then and fuel cells indeed do take off. Well, you can imagine that today's prices for platinum is going to be a fraction of of where they'll end up. I just translate that into the South African situation. We have a a country that, with Zuma, rightly so, people were negative, and and um, the country really the prospects were Zimbabwe-ish. Now that has been averted. Now we are moving forward. Uh, there is it's not going to be smooth sailing. There will be volatility, but you don't sell at the bottom. You actually buy at the bottom. So to be now advising people to be dumping their South African stocks after a year where they've outperformed emerging markets and indeed in a position where the future is a whole lot more promising than it was over the last five years that you're using as the benchmark, I just think that's uh, that's irrational. That's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to read a transcript of this interview, one is available on business.com in the premium section. Remember, you can subscribe to premium for just £5 a month and that subscription will give you access to the Wall Street Journal. You can also join our private WhatsApp group uh, where Alec Hug shares his daily insights.